What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So, turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume, and this is Totally 80s. You want fame? Well, fame costs. And this is where you start paying in sweat. sweat. (laughs) Very good. Uh, Today, we're going to cut loose, as in Footloose, Xanadu, Fame, of course, and even The Apple. Yes, we are talking about movie musicals of the 80s. We're also going to talk about the important role that music played in other movies, like... Uh, I just got to say, I'm here with John Hughes. Hey! Not that John Hughes, but still, (laughs) of course, we have to talk about Pretty and Pink, The Breakfast Club, some kind of wonderful, all the movies by the other John Hughes. So here we go. Um, So we're just going to talk about The Apple for the next hour. We decided that? Yes, I think so. The greatest movie musical of all time, or at least of the 80s. It came right in at the start of the 80s and uh, 1980. I believe it was made in 1979. And um, the thing that I think is funny about it is it was made in 1979. It came out in 1980, but it was supposed to envision a future of 1994, a future where Nirvana and Weezer did not exist, where people were in flying cars and there was uh, this group from Moose Jaw. Why don't we start? Why don't you? (laughs) I know you're a big Apple fan. First of all, the Apple. So let's set the scene. The Apple was a picture this. Yeah, picture this. Uh, Moose Jaw, 1994. (laughs) The uh, Apple was made as I don't know is conceived as a ripoff of another movie that was coming Xanadu. Xanadu. Right. And it was, which we will talk about. Oh yeah. But the apples are, uh, if you haven't seen the apple, please don't rent it. Don't (laughs) stream it. Go buy it. I own it. I own it in three formats. It's the most ill-conceived, poorly realized vision that is perfect in every way. Almost like Showgirls, which is my other favorite movie of all time. I have several favorite movies of all time. Uh, the, Why doesn't this surprise me, John? I know, right? It's such a cliche. But the Apple is amazing because it's like every possible choice that I, they made was wrong. I feel like we're stumped. <laughs> like for the first time, maybe in the history of us doing this podcast, we're like, ah, how to describe how do this? We, display? we can't. Okay. Basically, it takes place in a sort of Eurovision style contest. The world is about competition Mm -hmm. and the only way they resolve wars and conflicts is through a Eurovision style competition. Which is actually the future I want. Right. I think the world would be a more peaceful place if people settled their disputes, not in Facebook wars, not Mm -hmm. in actual wars, but in disco talent shows. Yes. That would work. So um, something that I think you know about me is I love all the reality shows that exist now. Right. 
and American Idol is one of them. And the producer of American Idol for many years was Nigel Lithgow, and he also created and executive produced and judges the show So You Think You Can Dance. And he also does a lot of things in the dance world, and he has this national holiday that he created called National Dance Day. It's recognized by the U.S. government that is supposed to promote fitness through dance in America, and they have events all over the country. Okay. So anyway, I've interviewed Nigel Lithgow a couple times about the Apple because he choreographed the Apple. It's his only cinematic credit. I guess he decided after that he was done, going to move to TV because, you know, he had a... Uh, I think a me, lot of people decided they were done after they finished the Apple. He, to his credit, he had a pretty good career afterwards, sure. which I don't know if he thought was going to be the case. He does defend the music. He will not mm-hmm. defend the film. I did, I've did. i interviewed him twice about the Apple and he always just looks at me like... Why do you want to talk about this? Of all the things I've done in my career, why do you? He's worked with the Muppets. He's worked on American Idol, but I want to talk to him about the Apple. He was a young guy that he told me that this was filmed in Germany. Yeah. And that everybody was on like speed, basically, hence the, the song the speed. speed. The- does it have more than one E in it? More than two E's in it? No, no. But I just in my I'm in my mind, I think it's speed with like four E's. The land of the free is shooting up with pure energy, and every day she has to take more speed. America, the home of the brave, is popping pills to keep up the pace, and every day she cries out for more. Just the lyrics are hysterical. Uh, America runs on speed. Uh, we got to give me more speed. And the the dance sequence, thanks, Nigel, mm-hmm. looks like everybody is on, I don't know, several strains of meth. He uh, said it was filmed in a in a old like gas mask factory in Germany, <laughs> which is on brand, I think, for it. Right. Uh, but he's right. The, the choreography was good. Mm-hmm. The costumes were good. The music was good. Do you have the soundtrack? I do. On vinyl? No. I Thanks do. for one up in me and making me look. Of course, it is it? Do you have it? Like, did it get reissued? No, no. I found did Rhino a, get on I that? found it on eBay. Yeah, we should do a super deluxe edition of Anniversaries next. It's it's turning a, f- a 40 oh next, uh, next year. So, but as I mentioned, the Nigel Lithgow connection, I think it's important that this movie is about people who go in what? A talent competition mm-hmm. that the public votes for and then their lives are changed. And then also there's this, the whole like mandatory exercise thing with the BIM where yes. you have to do this. Everyone stops and has to do like a dance sequence. Right. Including surgeons in the middle of surgery, yeah. which Priorities. is, you know, poor guy. So what I'm trying to say is, although Nigel Lisco won't admit it to me, maybe the Apple did not predict 1994 so well, but it predicted American Idol and mm-hmm. it predicted National Dance Day. And so you think you could dance. Tell me I'm wrong. I can't. I think that's actually <laughs> a really good point. And the survivors of the Apple, <laughs> Nigel Lisco and Fiona Hughes, Fiona Hughes mm-hmm. and I don't know, Mary Catherine Stewart? What else did she do? She, she did I'm a confusing her with things. the one from uh, Some Kind of Wonderful. She, she did Night of the Comet. Was that her? Uh, I think that was right. her as well. She gets she has a couple things. I, I think. think Nigel came out on top He's, here. For sure. But, because his choreography yeah. wasn't bad. It was, you know, very much of its time. Right. But I did ask him when I interviewed him the first time for the Apple, I said to, and I'm, by the way, I'm the only person he's ever talked to about it because I think he just knows I'm coming from a place of, <laughs> well, I am making fun of it, but I'm coming from a place of love. I'm on his side. I'm telling you. And I did say to him, what did you learn from 
making this movie and like what not to do. Because as you mentioned, John, like every decision they made was wrong. And he basically said, maybe have the script written before you start filming the movie. Because there's an ending on it that's completely tacked on where everyone's like, how do we film? uh, Sorry to spoil it for you, those who haven't watched it, which is like most of you. Uh, But it's like, how do we wrap a bow on this? Let's have Mr. Tops come in. Who's God, basically. Let's have God come in and fix it at the, in the last li- two minutes of it's the film. It's literally, it's literally a deus, deus, uh, a mic, now I'm going to screw this up. What is the Latin again? Deus Umachina? Sure. <laughs> yes. Sure. Uh, and they all, if I remember correctly, which I do because I've watched this a billion times, they get in a solid gold Cadillac and ride off to heaven. It's an allegory. It's kind of similar to the end of Greece. Greece. <laughs> they all go to have, which, you know, you know, the rumors since we're talking movie musicals about the end of Greece. Well, this is 70s. But yes, that sure. Sandy was dead the whole time. Right. And maybe then, everyone <laughs> in the apple was dead the entire maybe. time. And then at the end, they all just go to heaven in their in their uh, DeLorean or whatever kind of car it was. One thing that I think is funny is Nigel Lithgow told me he was a young guy when he when they were making this film in 1979. That he had this vision. He really believed in it. He didn't necessarily believe in the movie itself. He could see things were going wrong. The fact that they didn't have a completed script. (laughs) They didn't have much of a budget. But he did believe in the music. And I do think he was right there. And he also thought his choreography was good. And I think he was right there. And he had aspirations that he was actually going to be nominated for an Oscar for Best Choreography. You know what the problem is there? What? No such category exists. <laughs> there was no there was no choreography for Oscars. There are for like Emmys and some other awards. So yeah, but you know, I'm not quite sure if uh if there had been such a category if the movie would have been recognized. But I do want to say it's interesting. We were talking a lot about the Apple, but you also mentioned Xanadu. Yes. There were a slew of movies that came out right at the cusp of the 70s and 80s, which was such an interesting time. Can't stop the music by the village people. Mm-hmm. Xanadu, the Apple, where it's like people didn't realize that things were changing yet. Like they're disco, they're basically disco movies. Oh, for sure. But by the time they were hitting the theaters, I assume these movies were made when it was like 79, like right. the Apple was. But by the time they were hitting the theater, like shit was already changing. Right. And the, it, these movies felt dated on release day. <laughs> yeah. You know? And it's weird. weird. They were all reaction, I think, to Greece, the success of Greece. And because that was the first successful movie musical in, I don't want to say decades, but mm-hmm. close. Long time. Yeah, long time. And uh, so they didn't take their cue correctly from Greece, which was find something that, while it may be dated in, in the past, the 50s is still universally loved. It was, we're going to be current and this is going to be now. And by the time it hits screens, it's like now is uh, no longer uh, flared white pants and things, disco balls. Things change at a really accelerated rate because, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, the Sergeant Pepper, where this is 70s again, yeah. but the Sergeant Pepper movie came out the same year as Grease and yep. it was Robert Stigwood and it was like, let's take something from the past and modernize it and it had all the elements, superstars in it and it just tanked. Boop. But Xanadu was also a, a, ta- a tanker. Um, when I've talked to Nigel, he says he's uh, bonded with John Farrar over um, that movie because they came around the same time and both were on like everybody, the Apple mm-hmm. and Xanadu were on everybody's year end worst list. Uh, Xanadu, if I'm not mistaken, was nominated along with Can't Stop the Music at like the first and uh, Razzies. What in an fact, honor. The Razzies were created for those movies because <laughs> they were so bad. This The guy who started them was like, let's have a... It was informal when it started. But Xandu we got to talk about because that soundtrack, 
is beyond reproach. It, it's really great. I mean, you've got uh, it's almost 50 50 ELO and, and Olivia, ELO and ONJ, as they say. <laughs> Um, That's but, a super group, J. Right. But the, but the movie, is it a bad movie? Um, That's a loaded question, Sean. I mean, is it a good movie? No. no. But is it, is it enjoyable? Is it an enjoyable movie? Hell yeah. yeah. Hell yeah, it is. Um, but the soundtrack, whether, you know, at, for also I do want to point out that it's a dated movie because of the, for many reasons. But right. one of the reasons it's a dated movie is a guy apparently had a job back then where his only job was to paint billboards of vinyl album covers. That's a career that's that definitely got phased out. <laughs> you know, he, that's what you were trained he, in. He was the tower sunset guy. That was his job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was his Just gig. painting album covers of billboards anyway um it's an enjoyable movie for a lot of reasons first of all i don't think uh we're burying the lead here i mean gene friggin kelly is in it right like as far as movie musicals of any decade mm-hmm. go it doesn't get any better than that i mean what a career high in a career of highs for uh Libby new john she got to dance with him right second of all there's roller skating in it lots of rollers not roller me. boogie can't really go wrong with right. roller skating um the tubes are in it i have one note for xanadu <laughs> the tubes dancing Tubes, and aren't they like warring with Gene, like a yes. big band with like Gene Kelly's band or something? You, you, like you, it's a cross-generational right. like you, sharks versus jet. Like The, the vision of Xanadu. What will Xanadu's theme uh, at this club be? And Gene Kelly's character is like, it's going to be this nice, classy band with Olivia Newton-John uh, singing, but this faux Andrew sisters fronting the band, singing the uh, 40s themed uh, dancing. And then... Uh, you have the guy, the main uh, male character whose name I'm blanking on, but what a dim bulb. Uh, he's like, no, it's got to be new wave. He wasn't and wrong. He wasn't wrong. He wasn't dim. And uh, I think he was a little dim. <laughs> if he wanted to have new wave in this club in 1980, he had his finger on the pulse. There are many other things in the movie that point to him being dim. But okay. okay maybe we'll give him this one. Yeah, he was. His marketing savvy was right. on point. And the tubes are in uh, their orange jumpsuits, I think, like fluorescent orange jumpsuits. And, seems and about right. They're the over the top dancers like getting wrapped up in the keyboard cable. And uh, the, the one uh, female dancer is kind of writhing on the synthesizer bank. Uh, it's just like, whoa, uh, this is this is what porn used to be for, for people <laughs> when you couldn't like re- easily access porn back in the day. A simpler time. You watched Xanadu in the theater. and you, you know. I'm embarrassed to say I can't remember this, but who won that fight? Did the two merge. Oh, OK. Remember, they Say-piece. slowly merge and it becomes like this uh, this early proto mashup. Well, see songs. It's great. Mm-hmm. 
once again predicting the future, but also once again proving my point that our our differences can be settled via musical wars, not actual wars. That seems to be a theme, especially uh, if you want to go on to Footloose. Well, before we talk about Footloose, though, I really want to quickly talk about the whole idea of a movie sort of showing two generations at odds with each other. Have you seen One Trick Pony, the Paul Simon movie? I've never seen it. No. Okay, it's interesting because this is how I was introduced to the B fifty twos. So, oh yeah, they're in it. This movie's terrible, by the way. Don't watch it, people. Just listen to us talk about it instead. Uh, So, Paul Paul Simon plays a guy. I'll do it real quick. He had one hit in the Vietnam era. It was a song called Soft Parachutes, and it was about it was an anti war song. Hold on. Let me laugh at that for a second. <laughs> Soft parachutes. Yeah. Go on. Something like that. So he uh, he's sort of he's a one hit wonder now, but he's sort of still, you know, this is like the early 80s and he's still like working off of this one song and he's doing a tour. And mm-hmm. there's a scene early in the movie. I believe this movie came out in 1980 or 1981 mm-hmm. where he uh, is in a club and he hears the he sees the B-52s and they're kind of representing the new guard and they're in full on B-52s world. They're like their their new wave style. And he's like, what the hell is this? Yeah. This is what the kids are into. And I saw this movie on cable and I was like. Yeah, this makes a real good point that he is obsolete and lame and this is the future. The B-52s playing so exciting live clubs club scene. So anyway, that wasn't a good cross-generational example. His character doesn't learn from this. His character digs his heels in and says... I don't remember what happened after that because the high point of that movie, which happens in the first 20 minutes, is the B-52s perform. What are they singing? Rock Lobster? Do you remember? I believe so. Oh, of course. They it are. was a long time ago, but uh, it's really good. It's the only reason to see that movie, to be awesome. honest. So, as you mentioned, Footloose. Yes. The war on dance. It was a tough time in the 80s. All these kids wanted to do was dance. They wanted to be dancing and leaping before the Lord. The Bible decreed <laughs> it, it does, so. Yeah, you're right. It's in the Bible. So it's it's interesting you bring up Footloose because there was a time in the early to mid 80s, around 84, where everybody, as you mentioned in 1978, everyone wanted to have the next Grease mm-hmm. because Grease had been so successful. Well, in 1984, everybody wanted to do dance movies because um, I would say Flash Dance was the one that opened the door. But there were also a lot of like Breakin' and right. let's not forget Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo, Shab- Crush Groove. Shabadoo. Crush Groove, all these dancing movies. And the Flashdance movie was a big movie for me. That's what made all the little girls want to take dance lessons. Right. So then I think, and I do want to talk about Flashdance, but we'll stay on Footloose. I, did someone basically decide, like, we need Flashdance, but with dudes? Yeah. Like a dancing dude. So let's get Kevin Bacon to, like, go crazy in a barn. Yeah. That was a good dance sequence. Was that him? Uh, no. It wasn't Kevin No. Bacon. Remember he's doing, like, gymnastics and everything on, like, a parallel bar? And it yeah. <laughs> wasn't Jennifer Beals in Flashdance no, either. No, no. It's like finding out Santa ain't real. Yeah. Uh, the best, I don't know if you've ever seen this, uh, old SCTV episode where um, <laughs> uh, Andrea Martin as Jennifer Beals is on the Sammy Maldon show. Please go on YouTube and watch this. It's okay. hysterical. Uh, but yeah, Footloose was uh, it really, okay, if you are a regular listener of this podcast, and why aren't you if you're not? Um, they you, surely will be after listening to us talk about uh, the Apple for 20 minutes. I know, right? More goodness to come. You know, I was brought up in a Southern Baptist home, and this movie was like, 
every Sunday morning for me. Were you forbidden from dancing? Oh, not dancing. It was rock music in particular. Really? No rock music. No. See what happens and when you don't let kids exactly. uh, do what they want. Look at the end of like John Hughes. They end up uh, as an executive at a music label. Um, so <laughs> Could be worse. Happy ending. Um, yeah. So when you see John Lithgow's spittle uh, <laughs> sermons about the evils of dance, I was like, oh, I'm, I think I'm being triggered right now. <laughs> Uh, because I don't even think, oh, this is, I, I just had like a super flashback to my youth. This is a 100% true story. My little sister rented the VHS of Footloose. Was and, it contraband in your home? No, they were watching it in the living room and my stepdad pulled it out of the VCR and was going to throw it in the fireplace until my mom stopped him and told him it was going to cost us $79.98 to replace that VHS from the rental place. That movie was, if I'm not mistaken, a solid PG rating. It wasn't that. Flashdance was, was R. They're making religion look like they're a bunch of crazy people <laughs> being spoken by a crazy person ready to throw a VHS throw tape into a, a fireplace. So <laughs> yeah, not, that's a bit extreme. This is not my therapy session, but I'm just telling you. <laughs> When I see this movie, I, you know, hand to God, you know, uh, I'm like, wow, this was like real life for people in mid-America. Did in, you have tractor races? No, not races. Two Bonnie Tyler songs? No, but OK, let's talk about the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got the, the, the big I'm going to teach you my friend how to dance thing. Right. Was that let's hear it for the boy? Let's hear it for the boy. That was a, that was a fun vignette. That was a vignette where someone like they basically condense what I guess is supposed to be weeks of dancing. There right. were always vignettes in 80s movies. It was either learning to dance right. or going shopping and getting a makeover. Now, this was like Chris Penn's makeover, I guess. I'm ignorant at the time, but I look back now. Two men in an abandoned barn <laughs> listening to Denise Williams. And I'm going to teach you how to dance is the beginning of every gay porno. That I've ever rented or bought, you know, I'm just uh, like, who wrote this movie? Every time he pulls me in, I just want to kiss. I never thought about it that way. You know, Blake Shelton <laughs> covered Footloose. The, the oh for the there was a remake of Footloose. Oh, what? Do you not the know the song or the movie? The movie, I believe. There I, was, wasn't there? Yeah, it was not as good as the original. I'm oh sorry. My Kevin God. Bacon was a good hero. I'm I'm sad to know he didn't do his own dancing, but as as you said, the soundtrack was good. Kenny Loggins was everywhere. We'll be talking yeah. about Kenny Loggins. Yeah. You know, Caddyshack, well, he, Top Gun. He was the soundtrack. He God. was the guy yeah. in the eighties. Denise Williams and the Bonnie Tyler song. A lot of people, I think, think of when they think of the eighties. They, I mean, we know that Bonnie Tyler wasn't a one hit wonder, but I think no. a lot of people maybe think of her as one because totally clips. Right. Eclipsed everything else she did. Right. But holding out for a hero. That was a good that was a good power ballad. was a good uh it, it that's one of those songs like i melt with you which you know has become a classic people do it in every karaoke bar or whatever mm -hmm. and but i 
if I, I'd have to look it up, I'm not, I'm, I'm stumbling here. I only think it got in like in the mid thirties Really, on the chart. It wasn't a huge chart hit back in the Interesting. day. It kind of like struggled a little bit, but it's, you know, it, it was on MTV every other second. Mm-hmm. So in, you know, in our eyes, it was a much bigger hit than the radio and sales may have indicated. Well, we should definitely talk about Flashdance as well while we're talking yes. about Footloose because Flashdance to me, that was like an hour and a 90 minute MTV music video. Yeah. It was so completely uh, influenced. Adrian Lyne's direction was so completely influenced by what was going on on MTV, which had uh, influenced how, you know, TV commercials looked and everything. It was gritty looking. It was like artsily directed. It had all these movie music videos within a movie. The, you know, obviously the thigh slapping. I'm doing like these sound effects. I'm slapping my thighs as we speak. The maniac dance, all of the dance sequences, all of the uh, strip club sequences, the way it was, you know, but there's so many holes in this. First of all, uh, I know you are, you probably don't frequent strip clubs where women dance. Not really, no. If you did, (laughs) if that was something you were into, would you want to see someone in Harlequin Cown makeup like dancing <laughs> and not taking off any clothes, right. doing interpretive like jazz hand dance <laughs> to flashing strobes. So like Romeo by Donna yeah. Summer. No, you want to see skin. Yeah. Um. So I was like, who are the men that are going to what looks like a kind of dive bar? And I believe Philadelphia or Cleveland, well, somewhere Pittsburgh, like that. Right? Pittsburgh, right? Yeah, Pittsburgh, yeah. that's what. She's a steel you know, worker. She was a welder. First yeah. of all, like that actually takes like a lot of training. And she was right. like 18 years. OK, here. Can I just real quickly rattle off all the things that are wrong with the movie before I get to what's right? Please. OK, you got to suspend a lot of disbelief, like I said, to think that working class dudes who go to a dive bar where they serve burger and fries and have chicks dance for money would want to see Jennifer Beals covered up wearing, you know, doing like new wave dancing as opposed to like, you know, just full on like lap dance, pole dance, the standard fare. Pittsburgh is the home of the Andy Warhol Museum. Okay. <laughs> so all right. Maybe a different That didn't gig. look like they had an overlap in clientele. <laughs> okay. Second of all, she's 18 and she's a welder. And my understanding is welding takes actually quite a bit of training. Right. Third of all, at the end of the day, the movie's basically saying, want to get your, have your dreams come true? Fuck your much older boss. Pardon my French, but that's how we get. She gets her audition is because he knows someone. At the end, no, there's no no time. Do I remember when that movie came out? Did anyone think like he's supposed to be like in his forties, right? And he's her boss, right? And she's much younger, and that's fine. But whatever, it was the eighties. It was a different it's time. Pre Me Too. But there's so much about that movie with the dancing, the sequences, the, the soundtrack, Donna mm-hmm. Summer. Everyone, of course, remembers the hit. And Giorgio Moroder is going to come up a lot in this conversation. Right. He did Top Gun stuff. He did the the Oscar winning flash dance theme that Irene Cara, you know, right. who did fame. You know, all these things are connected. But, you know, um, Maniac by Michael Cimbello. And mm-hmm. I don't even know who did it, but that song Manhunt. Oh, yeah. I'm going on a manhunt. I don't know. We have to look that one up. I'm going on a man. wasn't even like a one hit wonder she was a no hit wonder but right. it was just like such a um 
I mean, I just think like so many people were chasing after that film. It influenced fashion. Everybody was, you Mm know, um, slashing. I still do it. Slashing off the necks of their sweatshirts. Leg warmers. Leg warmers. Everyone was where all these dance movies and these hit dance soundtracks were making people dress like they were going to ballet class when they were going to the Seven right. Eleven. Everyone's walking around in like, <laughs> you know, leotards <laughs> and leg warmers and like a slashed warm up jacket and like slapping their thighs and they're not dancing at all. I tried, but there, there were so many great dance movies. And of course, dance, great dance movies have to have great soundtracks. Yeah. Uh, that, Otherwise you ain't going to dance. And I mean, I think another another running theme through all these uh, episodes is Casablanca Records mm-hmm. because that soundtrack was on Casablanca, right? Was it? Yeah, oh, okay. yeah. And I think it was like the last gasp of Casablanca. It was a good gasp. Yeah, right. They so, went out. What a way to go out. Well, you're also talking about we were. You mentioned I melt with you, so we have to talk about Valley Girl. Because oh, yeah. I am one. Yes. I was a Valley Girl. And again, I love to sort of poke holes in, in, in the suspension of disbelief of these films. As someone who grew up in the Valley, I'm telling you that my dream was to have a punk rock new wave boyfriend who looked like Nicolas Cage as Randy back then, who would, um, you know, come over in his muscle car from over the hill, as they call <laughs> it, from uh, and then pick me up and whisk me back over the hill to the Sunset Strip, to the Central, which later became the Viber Room, to see the Plimsolls perform. My dream was also to have Josie Cotton in a plastic skirt play at my prom. But anyway, the idea that there was, again, this sort of war that music eventually could heal, but this sort of war between different groups. But the idea that people in the Valley, my friends, wouldn't think it was cool that I had a punk rock boyfriend from Hollywood, but would be turning up their nose. That is not the real the realistic view of my childhood. I wanted that so badly. I always was trying to find rides over the hill to go to Hollywood. But that was a great Romeo and Juliet story. Mm -hmm. And what I like about this soundtrack, uh, again, um, I mentioned New Wave and punk and all that, is my understanding is this soundtrack, which didn't come out in the 80s, it didn't come out till much, much later, but they uh, it made a hit out of I Melt With You by Modern English, right. um, which incidentally, in another podcast I will mention, is the first video I ever saw on MTV. Oh, wow. But they didn't have huge hits or huge mm-hmm. artists on this. They didn't have as much of a budget. So they had people like Felony, yeah. the Paolas, mm-hmm. the Plimsolls, who actually performed, Josie Cotton, who performed in the film, uh, Sparks, I believe. But yeah. like, you know, it, this wasn't, you know, Even this wasn't Kenny Loggins and Irene Cara at all. Yeah. Now, what what came first, the soundtrack or those songs on K-Rock? 
That's interesting. Now, K-Rock is, for those who yeah. listening who aren't from L.A., was a really important, it's still an important station in L.A., but um, alternative rock station. But I don't think people who, you know, are younger or who moved to L.A. later understand just how weird that station was right. in the 80s. I don't know when you moved to L.A., John. Uh, 2000. Okay. Yeah. But you're familiar with the oh, lore. For sure. And, and, and there were uh, consultants that uh, tried to take that format nationwide. And we had one glorious summer in 1983 in Cleveland, Ohio, where I grew up, where we had a K-Rock influenced radio station that just tanked in the ratings. Well, yeah, because it was weird. It was playing yeah. like Devo deep cuts and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, I was obsessed. But the I think the Valley Girl soundtrack, and I'm not sure when it came out. I don't think it came out like officially till the 90s. Mid 90s. Thank you, Rhino. Which is interesting. But like when I look at it, it's like. It was, I think it was groundbreaking. You know, now we sort of take for granted these kind of hipster soundtracks, like the Twilight soundtracks. Right. But I would say this soundtrack, and I would say definitely all the John Hughes soundtracks, which we haven't even talked about yet, and the Lost Boys soundtrack were the ones that sort of came up with this idea that a soundtrack could have maybe, you know, the not the pop hits of the day. It's great, you know, Flashdance and Footloose, they had big pop stars right. and they had top 40 hits. But these kind of underground hipster soundtracks, I think. I think Valley Girl is one of the most important ones. And I'm not just saying that because I'm from the A18. Yeah. And I wonder, was that uh, was that more of the directors, you know, like John Hughes or, or who, I'm blanking on who directed Valley Girl? Or was it Amy Heckerling? Amy Heckerling, right. Yeah. yeah. Were they the ones picking the music as before the era of the music supervisor? And That's interesting. I don't know about Amy Heckerling and Valley Girl in terms of who picked the songs for the soundtrack. I know she's the one that reached out to Josie Cotton, though, mm -hmm. to have her in the prom scene. And again, that's the prom I wanted to have. I didn't have Josie Cotton doing Johnny, Are You Queer at oh, my prom. Or <laughs> on Square Pegs, having Devo play your bat mitzvah. Oh, my Muffy. God. Yeah, that's enough yeah. reason to have to convert. To right, Judaism, exactly. Devo will play your bar mitzvah. <laughs> right. Sign me up. Um, but let's talk about the John Hughes stuff. He was given your namesake and yeah, all. Yeah, I know. I, I I adore having that name actually, um, and it is my real name. I uh, love the fact that he was personally responsible for picking the music for his movies. And the most frustrating thing for me growing up then was Pretty in Pink. Um, no, sorry. 16 Candles. 16 Candles. Well, there's a lot of problematic oh. stuff with that movie. A lot of 80s movies. But I saw 16 Candles on my 16th birthday in no. 1984 because they had a nationwide promotion that if you turned 16, you went to the theater and you showed your ID, you got a 16 Candles t-shirt and you got, I think, free admission into the movie. And I loved it so much. And there was no soundtrack to 16 Candles except for a little EP that had like six songs. There was no full soundtrack. Which had the Stray Cats on it doing 16 right. Candles and mm -hmm. actually had one of the most popular Thompson Twin songs. If you were here. And it's interesting, they never, I've talked to Tom Bailey about this and uh, Thompson Twins never released that song as a single mm -hmm. because it actually doesn't have a chorus. They right. did not think it was structured in a single way, but because it soundtracked that final scene with Jake at the end of Sixteen Candles, it became like 
the mo I've seen Tom Tom Bailey perform in recent years, and mm-hmm. when he does, if you were here, it gets the best response. People love that song. And yeah, it's a it's a bummer it wasn't released as a single because they had had you know lies and uh, love on your side, like a little minor skirmishes mm-hmm. with the top forty, but that would have probably been a top ten hit. When I interviewed Tom Bailey, he had never seen Sixteen Candles. This was recently. I'm like, stop what you're doing and go watch oh, it. Oh my god! But I I in terms of soundtracks, mm-hmm. I like the Pretty and Pink one best. I do yes. as again again saying things I think are problematic about movies. A lot of people get upset about the fact with that movie that Ducky and um, Sam don't get together. Is it Sam? Yeah. Yeah. Claire is from. No, Sam's 16 Candles. What was she uh, in? Andy. Andy. Yeah. It, okay. You, so Molly you, Ringwald was Sam in 16 Candles, right. Claire in Breakfast Club and Andy in um, Pretty in Pink. Right. So a lot of people want Andy and Ducky to get together. And apparently they're still in the vault somewhere. A, um, you know, nope. an, an ending that's never, right. I'm surprised they really haven't released it just so people can yeah. see it. Apparently it tested poorly. I have talked to Molly Ringwald in an interview about this and she always thinks it's good they didn't get together she believes ducky is gay D- ducky's gay thousand percent sorry john <laughs> okay. john crier sorry i know you disagree but the thing that i found problematic about it is the simple subtle message that john hughes actually had in a lot of his he often put into a lot of his films women getting makeovers to basically to be more basic right so iona who runs tracks the store where andy works she she's probably not that old but she's an older woman she's mm-hmm. probably supposed to be in her 30s like 35 she's played by annie potts and she's this Crazy new wave chick. She mm-hmm. looks like she's in the flirts. She's got like this, <laughs> you know, the hair. She wears like sort of, you know, the the suiting and the polka dots and the right. new wave stuff. And she's got Spike Liberty hair. And Owns she's her super own successful business. Business Let's not owner. That. But what message is she getting? Men, you know, men don't like her and it's time for her to grow up. And when Andy gets sent to the principal's office, what does he tell her? Andy, if you send signals to people that you don't want to belong, they'll make sure you're not. Basically, don't dress don't. that way. Yeah. So Iona, at the end of it, she gets a makeover to look more like her designing woman era. <laughs> She's wearing like a sensible blazer and a mullet. And what does she get? A doctor that's dating her. She's yep. grown up. And first of all, it's like, why is dating a doctor as opposed to like another like creative eccentric person? Right. The the desired goal. Also, I would have preferred if they had to. You know, and I talked to Molly Ringwald about this and she said, yeah, when you see Iona's makeover, it's disappointing. Yeah. I would have preferred it if they had the doctor. She got like the successful, you know, doctor boyfriend, but mm-hmm. he liked her the way she was. Right. Like he liked the fact that his girlfriend looked like Cindy Lop. Right. So, but soundtrack wise, I think this is, you know, uh, one of the best soundtracks of the 80s. It, it was uh, uh, sort of life changing for me and all my friends because you had bands that were really underground on the fringe especially in the midwest like echo and the bunnymen new order new order and all of a OMD, sudden of course omd has their first big you know they had a top 40 hit was so in love before that but this was their first big hit i think the the yeah. lay person casual person who maybe younger person who doesn't know much about omd this is the song they know for, for sure and echo and the bunnymen you know people were like what a strange name but now they know bring on the dancing horses The 
big disappointment of the Pretty in Pink soundtrack. The re-recording of the title track? There's Well, okay, there's three disappointments. Okay. Because <laughs> now I've just thought of two more. We're on such a bummer. I'm like, and another yeah. thing that sucked about this movie. The re-recording of Pretty in Pink yeah. by the Psychedelic Furs. I prefer the original. The horns, far too slick. Keith Forsey, I think, production. Mm. The, he was involved with a lot of the Hughes movies. Wouldn't it be good by the Danny Hutton hitters, not... Nick not Kershaw. Nick Kershaw? Nope. I do not a remember this. I completely yes. erased this from my memory. And In Excess is on the soundtrack. And what is it? A song called Do What You Do, which is a complete rewrite of what you what you need. <laughs> sort uh-huh. of. Yeah. Well, what's interesting, though, is the John Hughes movies were all the soundtracks were great. Of course, mm-hmm. Simple Minds, you know, even though they didn't write Don't You Forget About Me, massive, massive hit, which, by the way, Molly Ringwald has covered as a jazz song. That's why I was yeah. interviewing Molly. She did a jazz album. Oh, she covered great. that song. Uh, and of course, you know, the Wang Chung. A lot of people think of don't remember Wang Chung's Fire song. Fire in the Twilight. You always remember the dancing mm-hmm. from that. But... I, she obviously, obviously, when I interviewed Molly, I talked a lot about the soundtracks and because she had just covered uh, Don't You Forget About Me, which, by the way, I believe Billy Idol was originally supposed to do. Yes. So she said that she and John used to make mixtapes for each other. Oh, wow. He would make mixtapes of music he thought she would like and vice versa because they, you know, she actually had an input mm-hmm. into the soundtracks. You know, she was. She, unlike most actors who are usually like 25 playing a 16 year old, yeah. she actually was the age she was playing. So he looked to her as kind of a muse of, for the soundtracks. And she, on one of her mixtapes, put the original Pretty in Pink by Psychedelic Furs oh, wow. on the tapes. The thing that kills me, though, is she told, I'm like, where are all these tapes? Where are all these cassette mixtapes that John Hughes made for you? She doesn't know where they are. Oh. She thinks they're, her sister threw them away. Wow. Or they're in a box, maybe in her sister's house. I'm like, are you even kidding me? Can you imagine having mixtapes by the other John Hughes? Oh, my God. So Holy grail stuff. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. This uh, Also, I do want to mention that Some Kind of Wonderful mm-hmm. uh, not only had the apartments on it, Right. Which was def- the band from uh, Australia or New Zealand. I can't remember. Somewhere mm-hmm. down there in that hemisphere. Right. But I do want to say just I feel that John Hughes, I don't have any intel on this. I just in my gut believe that John Hughes made that movie to correct the fact that he wanted Ducky and Andy to get together in yeah. Pretty in Pink. And he didn't get his way because it tested badly. So in some kind of wonderful he reversed it gender wise. Gender swap. But not only was the the hero, the heroine of that movie, a drummer, which is pretty rad. Right. But at the end of the day, in that film, instead of the Eric Stoltz ending up with Leah Thompson, the popular girl, mm-hmm. the two BFFs do get together and hook up at the end. So yeah. I feel like the universe was righted by that. And it gave us flesh for Lulu. <gasps> which I love that record. Long live the new flash. God, I loved them so yeah, much. I go crazy. Great. was from that I film. I go crazy. Yeah. Postcards from paradise. And yeah. That was a great record. Hmm. Yeah. Poor flesh for Lulu. Yeah. Cause the lead singer recently passed. No, Have and you? they never got, they never really got their due. They never got their due. Yeah. Well, Have, but John Hughes, you know, he, like you say, he didn't always, you know, go with the obvious choices and no. And he was smart because he surrounded himself with young kids 
uh, for research or whatever, even back when he was writing for National Lampoon, he would when he was writing about a subject, he would do a lot of research Mm -hmm. with the right people. And the casting was so on point because they, you know, if those movies were made today, they'd find like the most beautiful people. He found people that had a snaggle tooth or, you know, kind of yep. funky look or they look like high school kids. And I do want to say, though, in in the Breakfast Club that, again, that conceit that you have to sort of make yourself over. Yeah. I I was not I, I, if there was anything that broke my heart in cinematic history more than Iona turning into a sensible middle aged woman. It was Ali Sheedy in the Breakfast Club. For, for why would she even want to date Emilio Estevez, the football player anyway, right. but her prize for scrubbing off her black eye makeup and putting <laughs> a bow on her head. Oh, now she's pretty. Now the popular guy wants her. So John Hughes was problematic in that way. I love him, but he did sometimes buy into some stereotypes with about youth culture that I did not no appreciate. doubt. And if it makes you feel any better, just remember she may have a bow in her hair, but she still has really severe dandruff. <laughs> So there's no fixing that in the detention room. <laughs> she kept a little bit of her. Yeah, of she, her exactly. Crack. There's a little bit inside. So have you ever seen the movie Starstruck? Do you I know don't what this know is? of the movie. Starstruck. It's a movie from the early 80s from Australia. And uh, I can't remember who it stars, but the director went on to direct some other famous Australian movie. Uh, but it's a musical about this girl who wants to be a singer and her little brother who ends up being her manager. And it's very new wave. And it's the reason why I bring it up. It's got a fantastic soundtrack. I don't think it's ever been released on. Who's on it? Anyone of note? No one of note, except for maybe you might know a band called the swingers. Nope. Uh, Stumped me. It's early MTV light rotation hit. uh, One good reason is the name of the song. another song called counting the beat that's on there as well and it was uh the finn's other brother you know the uh, the finn brothers from split ends they had yet another brother who wasn't in who split was ends. not in split ends but was in swingers so it, prolific family starstruck if you've never seen it it's on dvd i think you get it for 10 bucks on amazon or something like that money well spent it's a great a fun movie, a very well done. I think it was too well done for America, if that's a snobby thing to say. You know what I love about this podcast, John, is of all the soundtracks that have come out in the 80s, we haven't mentioned Purple Rain. No. <laughs> we haven't mentioned, but we're like, let's talk about Starstruck and the Star Apple. Trek. How, how, how narrow casting. <laughs> we can haven't this talked go? about, you know, like the huge number of like actually successful soundtracks. We should talk uh, about we've touched on Purple them, but, Rain. Yeah. I, of course, iconic. There's no disputing it. Makes me angry because the songs, because of the songs that are not on it. That Apollonia on it. Right. Six, Morris Day in the yeah. Time. It was basically a Prince album, right? And a right. great one at that, of course. You know, make it a proper soundtrack. Uh, you know. Uh, well, I've talked to Morris Day about that, and I'm like, how come you know your songs, which were hits, mm-hmm. The Bird, were not on the Purple Rain soundtrack? He's like, that's an interesting question, Lindsay. <laughs> He's like, I never got the answer. You know, you know, obviously him and uh, Prince. You know, although they were friends, they also were frenemies and sometimes downright enemies and yeah he prince didn't want it to be a soundtrack he wanted to basically be kind of like parade with under the cherry moon yeah it's a a movie no one needs to see inspired by 
Yeah, inspired yeah, by, which is actually a trend now, which now right. there's a million inspired by. But um, I'm inspired. I need to, you mentioned Greece. Yes. Can I just take a moment to talk about Greece too, John, please? I think we should take more than a moment because okay. I'm a cool, cool writer. <gasps> so you're a Greece 2 fan. <laughs> I am a Greece I'm going to say fan. something. I've said it on the record before. I don't mind. Come at, don't at me or actually go at me. I don't care. Greece 2 is better than Greece. There, I said it. Uh, well, Okay. I'm, this is a hill I'm going to die on. I, I'm going to bowl tonight. <laughs> okay. Well, here's. Can I talk about all the reasons why I don't like Greece and prefer Greece too? Uh, conceptually. Conceptually. Okay, go for it. Again, I'm going to get on like my little feminist soapbox for a minute. Do it. I loved Greece as a child. I saw it when I was really young, but when I later saw it as a as an adult, I'm like, I don't know if I feel like I like again the idea a woman has to change herself for a man at the very end of it. Sandy gives up everything. Okay, let me just start right. off at the beginning. Sexualized. This guy, Danny Zuko, yeah. treats her like shit for right. the whole movie. The minute she arrives, you know, he doesn't think she at, at Rydell High. He doesn't think she's cool enough for his friends. So when she shows up and surprises him at the pep rally or whatever right. it is, he pretends like he barely knows her and he's a dick to her. And then when, you know, and then he um, uh, is a dick to her at the malt, malt shop. Mm-hmm. You know, he's embarrassed that she's a goody two shoes, basically. He cares much more about what the T-birds think. Right. Then he abandons her at the prom. To dance with his ex-girlfriend, who's a better dancer, so he can win some sort of trophy. Mm-hmm. Then he pretty much tries to date rape her at the drive-in, right. which well, was a subtext that flew over my head at the time. Right. But the we're supposed to the whole time be rooting for them to get together. Right. Okay. And at the end, the only way she gets with him is to perm her hair and wear clothes that did not exist in the 50s. It's basically like a 70s woman in spandex, candies, cork heel stilettos and stuff. Right. But she basically takes up smoking. Maybe it's better if she was dead this whole time. (laughs) Maybe. Because this is. It it also translated to real life because then Olivia becomes totally hot. (laughs) That is true. There was. I've always thought that the the Sandy metamorphosis at the end of Greece maybe was uh, inspired her later looks in the 80s. But Danny didn't have no future. She should have stayed with that valedictorian. And not only that. Okay. What's she going to do with her life? She becomes what Danny wants. Mm-hmm. Hypersexualized, ready to put out, basically. Smoking, bad and habits. What's Stockard Channing's character's name? Rizzo. Rizzo, Rizzo thank you. Jeez. You should be very Brain ashamed you didn't there. know that. Yeah. Rizzo, who does everything that they want, is ridiculed and shamed for. There are worse things she could do. Exactly. But anyway, that's a movie from 78, so we're moving now into the 80s. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you know this fun fact, but Danny and Sandy were supposed to be in Greece, too. Danny and Sandy were supposed to originally own the auto shop the mechan- where Stephanie, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, super hot Michelle Pfeiffer, hottest she's ever been, right. is supposed to be the mechanic. So they decide not to do it. They weren't into it. You know, this movie kind of ruined Alan Carr's career. But the idea that that was all Sandy could aspire to if she married Danny was to like co-own an auto shop yeah, with Danny you when know. she and work at it when, you know, she was a great student and she was dating like guys who were valedictorians and Letterman sweater wear. So anyway, they ended up not being part of the movie, but they gender flipped the whole thing with Grease too. Mm-hmm. Stephanie is the one who's in control, in charge. She, I love, she has so many good lines. Like when Michael's like, I want to know if you are free tomorrow after school. And she goes, yeah, I'm free every day. It's in the constitution. And she's like, <laughs> I kiss who I want, when I want. No one can tell me who I can date. With Helen is the I want a devil's skin tight leather. It's gonna be wild as the wind. 
And also, there are some suspensions of disbelief in this. First of all, the main one that Michael Carrington wouldn't be the most popular guy in school the minute he got off the yellow bus. Right, exactly. Super friggin' hot. Right, right. British accent, Mm -hmm. smart. I mean, he would have literally been the most popular guy in school, but he wants Stephanie. But he's the one that changes for her. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, he uh, improves his standing. He doesn't like start sucking in school or whatever, but he becomes this hot motorcycle guy. She he likes her the way she is. Mm -hmm. She's a tough, independent chick. She's not going to just date a T-bird. She's not going to date Adrian Zemed just because that's how like the school rules are. Right. So in general, I feel it's a more feminist film. And but since this is a music podcast, the soundtrack of this movie slapped. It's so much better than Greece. Maybe it's because I've heard the Grease well, songs see, a million times. I was going to say, why did Grease 2 fail? Was it the storyline? Was it lack of star power? Or was it the soundtrack? Because some people do not like the soundtrack and they think that's why the movie Who did not do like well. Who doesn't like Cool Rider? What's more iconic than- Bold tonight. <laughs> what's more, okay, what's more iconic, first of all, than Michelle Pfeiffer in skinny jeans- straddling a ladder mm-hmm. saying she wants a cool rider. That's I hot. think there's a little bit of coming around because those songs are now in karaoke books. Oh, you I've can, done, yeah, I've yeah, done can, cool rider and karaoke. Right. Wait, the other ones are, we're going to score tonight. Uh, score tonight. You keep I saying keep let's bowl, bowl tonight. tonight. That's the P. It, no, yeah, it's are, we're going to score. In a, yeah. They're in the bowling tonight. alley when they sing yeah. it. Right. Is that why I'm saying there bowl are tonight? so many sexual songs yeah. in Greece too. There's we're going to score tonight right. in which bowling is a metaphor for yes, sex. Thank you. Please let's not forget with Tab Hunter reproduction. Where mm-hmm. does the pollen go? Make my stamen go berserk. <laughs> All these like biological like. I'm enjoying your singing. By the oh, way. I watch this movie like a couple times a month. I've seen it like right. midnight screenings of it. Um, there's also let's do it for our country, yeah, which exactly. is actually problematic because like basically someone's pretending there was a nuclear war outside. So he, his girlfriend will go all the way and it takes <laughs> place in an air raid shelter. But let's do it for our country. Every song is like these are like sexed up teens. It's the beginning of the 60s, the right. 60s revolution, the 50s, you know, in in uh, in um, Greece one. You know, Sandy doesn't want to put out. She's Sandra D. Right. And Rizzo is shamed for being a bad girl. But in Greece, too, the bad girls are the heroes mm-hmm. and everyone aspires to be like him. The fashion's on point, too. Little pencil skirts, yeah. one left in a sweater. Yeah. One left underused in the movie, by yeah. the way. So I fully support Greece, too. I don't know why it wasn't more successful. I would only say I do think the soundtrack is great. I mean, Back to School again is by the, the four mm-hmm. tops are on this soundtrack. Yeah. The actual four tops. Right. I just think maybe they shouldn't have called it Greece, too. It's kind of like the monkeys and the new monkeys. They should have called it something else. Right. Maybe Rydell or something. Yeah. But um, good cast. Obviously, Michelle Pfeiffer's career went from strength to strength after it. She doesn't, I don't think she likes this movie. I know Olivia Newton-John doesn't like it. Right. But Cool Rider, I think, from both movies combined is absolutely, it's it's right up there with you're the one that I want. Yeah. It's great. Time has been kind to Greece, too. (laughs) I think, you know, I like to... Champion the movies that people tend to forget about, like the Apple and yes. Grease too. There's also some other. Um, I, I think we should talk about more musical movies that like starred artists or had soundtracks that were entirely Ooh, by one artist. Let's hear it. 
Well, the Ramones Rock and Roll High School. Yeah. Uh, Roger Corman. Did he direct it? He produced it, I think. It was, it was Roger Corman produced at least. Interesting. Uh, and, you know, historically tangled up in lots of litigation, but now the soundtrack is out on Rhino. What's interesting is that from my, I've always assumed that movie was made for the Ramones, like the inspired, because yeah. I can't imagine any other band being in that film. And of course, you know, they, Rock and Roll High School is their song. <laughs> But apparently it was written without them in mind. And the original band that and this was also would have been good. And if someone still wants to make this movie, it's fine <laughs> with me. But originally it was supposed to star Cheap Trick. Really? Yeah. Wow. They that's were the first, cool. And I kind of could see that because, you know, they had a heartthrob in the band, but they mm-hmm. also had a couple goofy characters yeah. in the band. I'm sure Rick Nielsen would have been really hilarious in it. Right. But yeah, it was written and the idea was it was going to, you know. Oh, wow. It could have been that uh, Riff Riff Randall was instead of being obsessed <laughs> with the Ramones, she could have been obsessed with Cheap Trick. Wow. And not a bad thing to be obsessed with at that time. Period. If someone wants yeah. to make Rock and Roll High School 2 right. starring Cheap Trick, <laughs> I'd be completely okay with it. Although there was actually... I don't know if you know there was a rock and roll high school too no it's called rock and roll high school forever, forever. yes I did and it know starred that. Corey Feldman um which poor thing but as I mentioned he was in along with the other Corey and rest his rest in peace Corey Haim uh he was in the Lost Boys we yeah. haven't talked about that soundtrack Lost Boys um again uh, people echoing, are strange echoing the Bunnymen rear their heads once more on the soundtrack is it is it lame for me to say that I not only heard People Are Strange by Echo before I heard the Doors version, uh, but I I'm, prefer their version. Uh, on both points, I am with you 100%. Uh, the Lost Boys soundtrack, uh, In Excess Jimmy Barnes, Good Times is on that, right? It sounds about right. Yeah, that's a good and song. And Roger Daltrey yeah. actually doing his own version of Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. Oh, that's by interesting. John. Yeah. Um, we've talked about Prince a lot, but there are other artists where they solely did the soundtrack from beginning to end. Have you ever heard the 1984 soundtrack by um, The Rhythmics? Oh my God. Okay. Again, another running theme through these podcasts, my love of the cutout bin. (laughs) The 1984 soundtrack was uh, clogging cutout bins across the country and I like that's liked, a shame. Yeah, I know. It's just travesty. It was right there next to the Grease Two soundtrack. Well, what if I told you that was the first Eurythmics album I ever owned? Not a bad entry point. Uh, I had all the singles, forty fives, but I never really got over that hump and bought Sweet Dreams or bought Touch. And you know, there's a nineteen eighty four soundtrack sitting in the cutout bin for a dollar ninety nine or so, and I'm like, oh, I like that song, Sex Crime, so I buy that's it. That's my favorite Eurythmics song, so by the good. way. Sex At first, I'm like really bummed by the soundtrack. I'm like, oh, this isn't very good at all. But then I start listening to Julia and the other things on there. uh, Plus good, double plus good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's like really. It's your turn to sing. Yeah, inventive stuff. And 
I remember MTV was all over the sex crime video. I even think it was like an MTV sneak preview mm-hmm. exclusive. So it was like on five times a day. And no radio. That's a that song yeah. so as a banger. No radio station would touch it. I think it only peaked at like number eighty four. Do you think it's because of the title oh, "Sex sure, Crime"? For sure, especially Which in some the people, South. Yeah, I do remember when that was on MTV, and I was like yeah. into it. My my either my mom or my sister seeing it and being like, "Sex Crime," and I'm like, "No, this isn't like a pro right. it's rape about song." Rape. No, it's like I'm. Like, it's 1984. I had right. to read it in school. Yeah, Don't you exactly. know this book? Yeah. And but it, they had so much capital at MTV at that time that not only did they play the crap out of that video, Julia has a music video. And Does they, it? Yeah, that's how I actually thought I need to buy this record because I like that really strange ethereal tune. And, you know, it's like a six minute song. And, and to see that on MTV, I'm like, what? Uh, and uh, the, I love that soundtrack. Good place yeah. in my heart and for a, that soundtrack. A perfect place, a perfect band for them, because as I mentioned, there are other um, books or movies that predict the future. And it, it seems very off, like the Apple was very off yeah. in predicting what 1994 was going to be. But like, you know, Eurythmics sounded like what the future, right. what 1984 should sound like. They were so perfect for that yeah. soundtrack. But since we're talking about artists that completely did a soundtrack from, you know, tra- all the way through, and again, a soundtrack that I I don't think did that well. What are your thoughts on Queen's um, soundtrack for Flash Gordon? I've never heard Flash. the whole thing, but that ah. is the most iconic <laughs> theme song because... Uh, it, it's so weird. <laughs> they got the dialogue snippets happening. My favorite part is Gordon's alive, alive, alive. And another one where there's a band that's coming off a mega album, The Game, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, another one bites the dust is a huge hit, crazy little thing called love, even play the game is a hit here. And they're like, okay, here's Flash. Do what you want. Carte blanche. Exactly. Well, that movie was a total box office bomb. But I saw it three times in the theater. Well, I think we gave people plenty to explore. Absolutely. Go buy the apple. Okay. So this is your, this is your homework assignment for your binge watching session after this. Grease 2. Yep. The Apple. For sure. Starstruck. Starstruck, everyone, please. And Times Square. Yes. All the cinematic hits. Times Square. I have to I have to go see Times Square. I haven't seen Times Square yet. Times Square, I just want to say who quickly was on it. Uh you mentioned uh, the cure, but also Talking Heads, Patty Smith, and Gary Newman. So mm. there you go. Worth That's it. your homework assignment, guys. Binge, awesome. binge watching. Uh and then you'll can have some more binge listening and come back. So tell us your favorite musical movie moments of the 80s at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram or at Totally80s.com slash podcast. I'm Lindsay Parker, and I was joined today by the other John Hughes. Thank you. It was great. It's fun to be here. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally 80s. And please leave us a review on 
your favourite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.